It's been a great series, hasn't it? I've really enjoyed it. And, uh, you know, we've looked at some of the philosophical reasons why uh, God, why there must be a God, you know. And one of those things that we looked at was the presence in, in, in people, even unbelieving people, of morality. And the fact that someone who does not believe in God, who has not who has not trusted in Jesus and be birthed to new life, the fact that there is morality built into people, uh, a, a greater good that shows what is bad, you know, that was one of the things that we looked at from a philosophical standpoint that points to a, a greater being that sets the morality in men's hearts. You know, the, the Bible talks about how the law of God is written on people's hearts so that they are without excuse, even if they have never heard the gospel. And that morality inside of us is a great witness of the existence of God. And, uh, you know, last week, like I said, I got to listen to Kobe on the podcast, and and he really kind of dug into some of the scientific things of the world that point to God. And, uh, you know, the first thing that he covered was, was the, the intricate and uh, advanced and detailed code called DNA that makes up each and every one of us. And it is so uh, structured and so advanced that if, if one piece was out, of, was out of whack, we'd either be totally different than what we are or, or not be able to live at all. And, and that, that, that structure and that code that is in life, you know, one of the things he talked about is, is uh, they estimate that the chances of, of a, a DNA genome coming together randomly and by chance is the same chance as a tornado going through a junkyard and forming a fully functional Boeing jet fueled up and ready to fly. When I heard that, that blew my mind. And, and you know, it's a great testimony that there is a creator, that there is a God. You know, another thing he talked about is irreducibly complex systems like the human eye in which if you took away even one piece, it would not function properly. It would have no function whatsoever. And uh, what that does is, is that that eliminates any possibility that these irreducibly complex systems could have evolved uh, step by step from something simple or from nothing into what it is now because if you take away even one piece, it doesn't function. And, uh, you know, it, it is a great proof against the theory of evolution. And just like, uh, you know, a, a, a uh, detailed and functioning machine like a watch points to a watchmaker, our, our detailed and functioning lives and the biological systems and the non-biological systems of the world point to a creator. They point to a, a, an intelligent God who made these things. And, and, you know, lastly, he looked last week at the what's called the Cambrian explosion in the fossil record when we don't see evidence of uh, species slowly forming from simpler species, but there is a sudden... Uh, explosion, if you will, of fossils of, of fully developed species that are found in, in, in one strata of the fossil record, uh, again, condemning the theory of evolution and pointing to and witnessing of the creation account given in Genesis. And so, uh, you know, those are just, that's just a quick high-level recap. I would encourage you to 
go back and listen if you've missed any of these because they've been just really great. And, uh, but today, having looked at the scientific and the philosophical things that point to the existence of God, I want to point us tonight to the historical witness of the life death and burial and resurrection of Jesus Christ our Lord. Because really, uh, that, is, that is the uh, great historical witness of God because God became flesh and He came down to earth. And if Christ is who He says He is and did what the Bible says that He did, then irrefutably, uh, then the, there must be a God. You know, the Jehovah of the Bible must be real. So let's take a look at that. Um, C.S. Lewis said that if Jesus did indeed claim to be the Son of God, which we know that he did according to the account given in the Bible, uh, we're, we're forced really with three possible conclusions. Uh, and you've probably heard this before. Number one, he either had to be a liar who knew that he wasn't the Son of God, uh, but propagated the lie that he was the Son of God despite knowing that, and if that's the case, then uh, we really don't have, uh, you know, any grounds to call him a good man or a great man or a good prophet from God. Uh, if that's the case, he's a liar. Uh, the second thing, uh, secondly, he could have been a lunatic. He could have believed that he was the Son of God, though he was not truly the Son of God. And again, uh, you know, that would really uh, eliminate the credibility that... that I wouldn't want to trust my life and my eternal destiny in a lunatic, um, and I know you wouldn't either. But the third conclusion is, is that he was the Lord, that he was who he said he was, that he was the Son of God come to, to take on the sins of the world on himself, to die on the cross to pay for our sins, uh, and, 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 and to rise again to newness of life as the Scriptures foretold uh, you know, hundreds and even thousands of years before he was born. So uh, l- let's look at that. You know, let's look at, at, at the, the threefold possibilities of Jesus. Was he man? Was he myth? Or was he Messiah? And so the first thing that we have to, that in order to have the witness of Christ and, and the reality of Christ, the first thing that we have to establish is that Jesus did indeed exist that he was a real person, that he's not a, a fictional character, but a, but a real person who walked this earth. And there's been quite a few books uh, written to, to prove uh, quite the opposite. Uh, one, for example, is called The Quest for the Historical Jesus. And the, the whole purpose of these books is to bring doubt and cast doubt into people's hearts about the, even the existence of Jesus. Uh, but history records quite the opposite of that, of those accounts, of those, uh, of those books. In fact, uh, I don't know if you guys have ever heard of, of Bart uh, Ehrman, but he is one of the uh, greater, um, I guess, agnostic or atheist voices in, in opposition to the Christian worldview. And uh, he actually says, he has a quote that I want to read you out of the book here. Let's see if I can find it. He says, I am not a Christian, and I have no interest in promoting a Christian cause or a Christian agenda. 
I am an agnostic with atheist leanings, and my life and views of the world would be approximately the same whether or not Jesus existed. But as a historian, I think evidence matters and the past matters, and for anyone to whom both evidence and past matter, a dispassionate consideration of the case makes it quite plain. Jesus did exist. And so that's coming from uh, an agnostic man who is in opposition to, uh, to the Christian faith. Uh, not only do the, do the Gospels, which we'll talk about a little bit more here in a second, give the testimony of Jesus' life, uh, words and actions, but ancient historians have also given an account of the man, Jesus Christ. Uh, the Jewish historian Flavius Josephus mentioned Jesus and John the Baptist toward the end of the, of the first century. And among uh, the many non-biblical references was, was a, a ruler, a Roman ruler named Pliny the Younger, in a letter to the Roman Emperor Trajan in A.D. 112. And uh, I'm going to read you this on page 14. Uh, you don't need to know the page. Uh, they, were, they were in the habit of meeting on a certain fixed day, speaking of Christians, uh, before it was light, when they sang in alternate verses a hymn to Christ as to, as to a God and bound themselves by a solemn oath not to any wicked deeds but never to commit any fraud, theft, or adultery, never to falsify their word nor deny a trust when they, when they should be called upon to deliver it up, after which it was their custom to separate and then reassemble to partake of food but food of an ordinary and innocent kind. And so we see here a reference not only to Jesus, to Christ, but also to his early followers in the church uh, from this, uh, from this um, I can't think of the word, uh, from this ruler, Pliny the Younger, to the, to the emperor at the time. And then there are the Gospels. And one thing that I think we often forget about the Bible is that it's not really just one book. The Bible is 66 different books written over 1,500 years. Uh, most, people, most people believe that Moses wrote the, uh, the law, Genesis, Exodus, and Leviticus, around 1,500 B.C. So from that time to the time of the writings of the apostles, 1,500 years by 40 different authors. And, and to me... The uh, synergy of the Bible over that time period and over all those authors is a great witness to God and how all these things fit together and, and make one word, one, uh, one word of God. And, and you know, you've heard people say that, that the best interpretation of Scripture is Scripture and that the Scripture stands in unison with itself over this big time period is, is just an awesome witness of the Lord and of God's existence, and of His sovereignty, and that every word is from the Spirit of God. But uh, specifically, looking at the life of Jesus, uh, the Gospels were written by four different authors and are the first-hand account of the events of Jesus' life. But what makes the Gospels different than most of the other, uh, most of the documents from other religions is that the uh, people... And the events that they described were written at the same time that most of those people were still alive. Uh, the Apostle Paul talks about that in, in 1 Corinthians 15. Uh, 
which if we have time, we're going to look at. And, and so we have, these, we, we have these written accounts, which if you know anything about historical documents, the closer uh, that a document is written to the events that it describes, the more, uh, well, no, the more scholarly clout it has as an accurate document. And, and so that's, that's just a, a, another um, witness and testimony to the, to the reality of, of Jesus the man. And so the overwhelming conclusion, and there's so much more you could read about, uh, it's been written about over and over again, but the overwhelming conclusion is that Jesus of Nazareth was indeed real. And uh, to quote the, the uh, agnostic man, Bart Ehrman, one more time, let me read this. Uh, he says, Jesus existed... And those vocal persons who deny it do so not because they have considered the evidence with the dispassionate eye of the historian, but because they have some other agenda that this denial serves. We, we saw that uh, Jesus, uh, by the historical accounts, by um, scholastic uh, historical proofs, uh, did, it did indeed exist as a man. Uh, and, and many skeptics uh, will concede that maybe Jesus lived, but they claim that all the miracles that he did uh, or that are recorded that he did are proof that over the years he's been mythologized uh, as, a, as a deity, as a god. And uh, some have tried to dismiss the gospel as more of a fairy tale than a historic account. And something interesting here uh, from the God's Not Dead notes is that uh, 106 out of the first uh, 108 universities in America were started to promote the Christian faith. Uh, and, and we understand that universities don't promote or teach fairy tales or Disney stories, but they teach uh, truth, historical truth and historical fact. Uh, but there's a lot of there's a lot of rumors circulating in in this vein about the mythology of Jesus. Uh, there's there's some that say that that Thomas Jefferson uh, had a Bible in which he cut out all the miracles of Jesus and only kept in his teachings. Uh, others have asserted that Jesus' story wasn't original, but that it actually copied stories from ancient Egyptian and uh, Persian mythology uh, in which there were gods who were born of a virgin on December 25th, uh, who performed miracles, who had 12 disciples, were crucified, and then rose again. And uh, so, so we've got all this uh, propaganda about the mythology of Jesus, but historically there's no, there's no uh, proven historical uh, documentation of any kind that that proves these things that actually substantiate them. Uh, uh, there was no similarity between the life of Jesus and the ancient gods and myths. And uh, the the truth is is that as people began to see the power of Christianity spreading throughout the world and the power of the gospels. Uh, they, they, the people of other religions actually went back and tweaked, if you will, their ancient documents to, to make their story, their, their gods and their prophets sound more like the Jesus narrative, the true account of Jesus. 
And so that's where some of the copying is. And in fact, uh, I'll read you another quote here by, by a, a Christian skeptic named Richard Carter. He talks about this. Uh, he says, The most popular and relevant claims of borrowing relate to Jesus' resurrection. For instance, the mystery cults worship dying and rising gods, which are often compared to Christian teaching on the resurrection. However, relevant parallels appear well after Christianity became established, and the mysteries themselves borrowed from borrowed Christian concepts to compete with the ever-expanding church. So it's quite the contrary to what people say. People say that uh, the Gospels copied these ancient myths, but in fact, historically, we see that the ancient myths actually copied the Jesus narrative because of the power of the Gospel and, and the power in the spreading of the church. Uh, another quote here from, uh, by, by Josh McDowell, uh, he says that a, that a few simple that a few simple men should in one generation have invented so powerful and appealing a personality, speaking of Jesus, so lofty an ethic and so inspiring a vision of human brotherhood would be a miracle far more incredible than any recorded in the Gospels. And so the accounts of Jesus, his miracles, his ministry. Uh, all that he did in the Gospels uh, are, 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 are not copies of myths, but are an original and historically proven account of, of, of our, our risen Savior as he walked in the earth. So lastly, uh, I just want to look at uh, the, the final question. Was he the Messiah? Was he really the, the, the Christ who came to, to, to bear the sins of the world and to die in our place? So, um, Jesus' words, whenever he was on the, on the earth, were like no one who had ever come before him, and no one who, had ever, who ever came after him. In fact, if you look at the prophets, like Isaiah and Jeremiah, whenever they spoke, they said things like, they preceded what they would say, their prophecies, with things like, thus says the Lord indicating this is what God has told me, and now I'm communicating it to you. But Jesus spoke differently. Jesus would say things like, truly, I say unto you. And he said things like, heaven and earth will pass away, but my word will never pass away. And he spoke differently. In fact, he spoke so differently that the religious leaders who were in opposition to him question how he and his followers who, who were after him, the apostles, spoke with such authority when, when they knew that they were uneducated and untrained men, and they spoke with authority. Why did he do that? Because we know that he is God, that it was not a prophet speaking what God spoke to him. This was the Lord uttering the word of God, uh, firsthand account. So his miracles, uh, raising Lazarus from the dead, walking on water, and feeding 5,000 with just a few loaves of fish caused people to say, uh, we've never seen anything like this. And no one had, because Christ began to bring healing. He began to bring uh, the miraculous working because God was proving through the miraculous that this was indeed the Son of God. But 
the great proof that Jesus was the Messiah was his resurrection from the dead. The prophets spoke of this. They said that Christ must suffer and then he will rise again from the dead. And that is great proof that he was who he said he was. And it's, you know, in one of the past videos with John Lennox, when they talk about his debate with Richard Dawkins, uh, you know, it talks about how he began to establish himself as a credible witness of, of, uh, of, of being a believer in God until at the end of his uh, debate, he mentioned that he was also a, a, belie- a believer in the resurrection, and, and Richard Dawkins kind of dismissed him as, as well, I, you were starting to be credible to me, but the resurrection. And it's one of the great disputes of, of, our, of our faith, but it is the great proof, and I'm going to show you in 1 Corinthians 15, the significance of the resurrection of Jesus. But uh, there's a man named Lee Strobel, and he used to be a journalist for a Chicago newspaper, and he was an atheist. And one day, uh, he decided that he was going to use his, uh, his journalism techniques to prove that God wasn't real. And so he began to do an in-depth investigative study on uh, everything that was available historically about God and about Jesus and uh, it's, he actually wrote a book. Uh, it's called The Case for Christ. It's an excellent book. I would, I would highly recommend it. Uh, but in his quest to prove that God was not real, Lee Strobel found himself to become a believer by, by journalistic, investigative uh, means and methods. And he summarizes his uh, proof of Jesus' resurrection in five E's. And uh, this doesn't go into any real detail. You have to read the book. Uh, But I'm going to run through these real quick. Number one is the execution. It's historically documented that Jesus was executed on a Roman cross. The second is the empty tomb. Uh, We know that three days after Jesus' execution, his tomb was found empty by a group of women followers. In fact... Uh, some of the people who sought to prove that Jesus uh, didn't, was not resurrected spread a rumor, and uh, I can't remember which of the Gospels it's recorded in, but it's in one of the Gospels that, that the disciples had gone and stolen Jesus' body. And that rumor actually still uh, is, is referred to uh, a lot by Jewish unbelievers and, 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 and others. And what's funny is, is that while they seek to disprove God, they still point to the fact that the tomb was empty. Without a doubt, the tomb was empty after three days. Uh, third is eyewitnesses. After Jesus' resurrection, he was seen by 500 eyewitnesses. More than 500 people firsthand witnessed Jesus alive after his death. Uh, and that's recorded by the Apostle Paul. Uh, at the beginning of 1 Corinthians 15. Uh, the fourth E is the early records. Uh, the Gospels, of course, are the key records of uh, Jesus' resurrection, but there is also uh, many, church, many writings by early church leaders that substantiate the Gospel accounts. And, uh, you know, in a couple of weeks, we're going to talk about uh, the... The, how the Bible, the gospel accounts specifically, are, 
some of are, are the most by a mile substantiated historical documents that we have available to us today. More than any history book that you've ever read, uh, more than any, any historical account, by, by scholastic uh, proofs and requirements, the Bible and the Gospels and these early accounts of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection have been substantiated scholastically and, and it's not even close. There's, there's not even a close second in, in, in any historical document that we have available. So these early, these early records speak of the resurrection. And the last, and, and to me, really the, the, the most powerful proof of Jesus' resurrection is the emergence of the church in the midst of the persecution of the world. Uh, you know, the sudden emergence of Christianity in the first 30 years has no other explanation than the fact that Christ's resurrection birthed a worldwide, unstoppable movement. Let me read you something. Uh, one more quote out of the book here. It says, This frightened, scared band of the apostles, which was just about to throw away everything in order to flee in despair to Galilee, when these peasants, shepherds, and fishermen who betrayed and denied their master and then failed him miserably suddenly could be changed overnight into a confident mission society, convinced of salvation and able to work with much more success after Easter than before Easter, then, there, then no vision or hallucination is sufficient to explain such a revolutionary transformation." Now, I want to ask you a question. I want you to really pose it to yourself uh, logically and openly. Would you be willing to suffer persecution and die for something that you knew to be a lie? Would you be willing to suffer persecution and die for something that you were not 100% sure was the truth. I wouldn't. But we see that 11 of the 12 apostles and innumerable early church believers suffered social, uh, social, they became social outcasts, they were ostracized, they suffered physical persecution and threat and many of them were murdered for their faith with the opportunity to renounce, yet still they went to the death. Many of them gruesome and terrible deaths, nailed to a cross, burned at the stake, torn alive by animals, uh, you know, tortured to death with, with uh, drowning techniques and other things. And these people, they, they, they hung on to the truth and the fact of the resurrection of Jesus Christ in the face of ostracizing, pain, persecution, and death. And to me, that is the great witness of the truth of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. That, that despite the great persecution of the church, uh, that the church grew nonetheless, and that many went to their death. In fact, something interesting, uh, you know, today... The Center for the Study of Global Christianity estimates that one Christian is martyred every five minutes for their faith. 
One Christian every five minutes. Why? Because we understand that even, even though we have not seen with our eyes, we understand that, that what we have when that new birth came into our hearts is real. And these things can only be from a real God. Amen? So, uh, Jesus asked his disciples, Who do you say that I am? And if we really believe that Jesus is both the creator of the universe and the savior of the world, then our only logical response is to follow him with all of our hearts. Right? And so, uh, real quick, I want to turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. And I just want to show you guys, uh, this is, it's a really long chapter. I would read it all, but it, uh, it's just really long. And I, I want to encourage you to, to, to read chapter 15 of 1 Corinthians because it's one of the uh, most detailed and significant chapters where the Apostle Paul really lays out the importance of the resurrection, uh, what it means to us, uh, both in our hearts and in this life and uh, in the end uh, times whenever, whenever Christ ushers in his kingdom. But we'll just, uh, we'll just look at a, a couple of things here. Uh, 1 Corinthians 15, verse 12. Let's see. He says, But tell me this, since we preach that Christ rose from the dead, why are some of you saying there will be no resurrection of the dead? For, it, for if there is no resurrection of the dead, then Christ has not been raised either. And if Christ was not raised, then, our, then all our preaching is useless, and your trust in God is useless. And we apostles would, would all be lying about God, for we have said that God raised Christ from the grave, but that can't be true if there is no resurrection of the dead. If there is no resurrection of the dead, then Christ has not been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, and this, listen to this, then your faith is useless, and you are still under condemnation for your sins. In that case, in that case all who have died believing in Christ have perished. And if we have hope in Christ only for this life, we are the most miserable people in the world. But the fact is that Christ has been raised from the dead. He has become the first of a great harvest of those who will be raised uh, to life again. So the first thing that the resurrection does for us is, is that it validates God and it validates our faith. It says that it, it's, it, it points to the fact that we are not trusting in a myth. We're not grasping at straws or, or trying to grasp the wind. But we have faith in something that we can stand on. We have faith, and, and it's substantiated by, by, the, by the supernatural resurrection of a man who went to the grave, was there for three years and, uh, three days, <laughs> and rose again. <laughs> three years. Uh, look, at, look at verse 23. Let's see. He says, But there is an order to the resurrection. Christ was raised first, then when Christ comes back, all of his people will be raised. So the next thing that the resurrection does for us is, is that it gives us hope that we too will be resurrected uh, you know, into glorified bodies. And we'll, we'll talk about that a little bit more here. Uh, but it, it gives us hope beyond this life. 
it, it lets us realize, you know, Paul said a while ago that if, if all we had was hope for this world, then we'd be the most miserable of people. But it gives us a hope. It gives us a reason when we, when, when we see people like uh, the psalmist Asaph does and, he, and, and we, we see the wicked prospering and we see, uh, and it appears that, 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 uh, that, that, it, that it doesn't pay to serve the Lord and, and we see uh, it seems just to be unfair. It gives us a hope beyond this life to push through and overcome and, 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 and fulfill those things that God calls us to do. Verse 30. And why should we ourselves be continually risking our lives, facing death hour by hour? For I swear, dear brothers and sisters, I face death daily. This is as certain as my pride in what the Lord Jesus has done in you. And that value... And, that, and what value was there in fighting wild beasts, those men of Ephesus, if there will be no resurrection of the dead? If there is no resurrection, uh, let's feast and get drunk, for tomorrow we die. So again here, you know, uh, pushing beyond this life, and it empowers us, the resurrection does, to live a life of righteousness, understanding that there is an eternity and that we will be rewarded for the good things that we've done by the Lord. You know, the Bible talks about that. And then skipping up to verse 42, it says, In the same way, for the resurrection of the dead, our earthly bodies, which die and decay, will be different when they are resurrected, for they will never die. Our bodies now disappoint us, but when they are raised, they will be full of glory. They are weak now, but when they are raised, they will be full of power. They are natural human bodies now, but when they are raised, they will be spiritual bodies. For just as there are natural bodies, so also there will be spiritual bodies. And see, the resurrection gives us promise and a hope in eternal life. That, you know, Jesus said, he who believes in me will not die, but will live forever. He said, I am the resurrection and the life. And the fact that Christ rose from the dead uh, gives us faith in this promise that we too will be raised to eternal life. And then lastly, uh, let's go to verse 51. It says, but let me tell you a wonderful secret God has revealed to us. Not all of us will die, but we will all be transformed. It will happen in a moment, in the blinking of an eye, when the last trumpet is blown. For when the trumpet sounds, the Christians who have died will be raised with transformed bodies. And then we who are living will be transformed so that we will never die. For our perishable earthly bodies must be transformed into heavenly bodies that will never die. When this happens, when our perishable earthly bodies have been transformed into heavenly bodies that will never die, then at last the scriptures will come true. Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? For sin is the sting that results in death, and the law gives sin its power. How we thank God who gives us victory over sin and death through Jesus Christ our Lord. So, my dear brothers and sisters, be strong and steady, always enthusiastic about the Lord's work, for you know that nothing you do for the Lord is ever useless. And you see, the last thing that the resurrection does for us is is that it gives us victory over this world. 
You know, John, he said, greater is he who is in me than he who is in the world. And Jesus, his resurrection and the promise that we know will happen because of that, of our resurrection, gives us a confidence that the greatest blow that this world has to give, death, has no sting to us because we understand that he who believes in Jesus will not die, but will live forever. Amen? Read the whole chapter. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we love you, God. We thank you, Father, for the awesome, powerful, historically proven and accurate account of Jesus' resurrection, Lord God. And Lord, we trust in that, Father, as a great witness that you exist, that you are who you say you are, God. And Lord, uh, we choose tonight not to believe the lies of this world, God, that, that, that you did not physically rise, Father God. And, and Lord, we, we believe, Lord God, that you are the resurrected living Christ tonight, Lord. And Father, I pray that you would set our hearts, Lord, not on this world, but on eternity, Lord, when you will resurrect us to glory, Father, and we will be with you forever. I pray that you would, uh, Lord, let, our, let us live our lives in light of that. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.